It may seem like it's been 19 years, but it actually has, because I write the books in a cyclical manner. So it takes actually four books to get through one year of Walt's literary life. What I did was I pulled a Vivaldi is what I did. I decided that if I wanted differing environs for each book, I thought, okay, why not go with the seasons? What's the thing that has the largest scale effect on us as Westerners? It has to be the seasons. It has to be the weather. And so each book has a season. And so after writing 20, I guess, you know, I'm working on the 20th book now, like that, I'm 20 years older than when I started, whereas Walt is only five years older than when we started writing the books. And so at some point in time, I'm going to be older than Walt. I don't know if I like that idea at all. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writers Block Podcast. We are very excited and honored to welcome our guest today. If you're a fan, as we are, of riveting mystery series and bingeable Netflix shows, you are in for a treat. We're talking today with Craig Johnson about all things Longmire, including the newest release in the series, The Longmire Defense. I am Ron Block. And I am Mary Kay Andrews. Craig Johnson is the New York Times bestselling author of The Longmire Mysteries, the basis for the hit Netflix original series, Longmire, which I was just telling him my husband and I binged all eight seasons during COVID. So he he got us through some dark months there. Yeah, I'm still in season one, but I'm going to get there because it's great. He is the recipient <laughs> of the Western Writers of America Spur Award for Fiction and the Mountain and Plains Independent Booksellers Association's Reading the West Book Award for Fiction. His novella, Spirit of Steamboat, was the first one-book Wyoming selection. Nice. He lives in Ucross. Is Did I say that right, Craig? You did. You did. You sound like a native. Ucross, Wyoming, <laughs> population 26. So when you go on book tour, Craig, do they knock it down to 25? They do. Like We have a removable number there on the end. We can just magnetic. We can just slap on the top of that like that. And uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's actually, it's interesting Like because we were 25 up until last year like that. And I think it's a scam myself. I think that the, the state is trying to get more money from the federal government if they have enough towns that have an increase in population. And so after 40 years, <laughs> evidently they decided that we could be 26 rather than 25. And it, it immediately set off like a, a, a scandal, you know, here in Ucross because everybody was running around going, who had a baby who moved in what happened like it. And so, as near as all 26 of us can tell nothing okay so who knows well welcome to the podcast thank you good to be here definitely yeah that's so exciting it's so great to talk to you and right from the get-go the book is like takes off. I, I love your introduction. Uh, you put the acknowledgments kind of at the beginning and talk about why you did the story, but what inspired you to write The Longmire Defense? What are you some know, of the themes that you in- wanted to explore? Well, there are a couple of things like that. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have a theme. It's one thing to have a story. It's one thing to have a, a connection with the characters. I mean, that's always where it is that I start. I always think, okay, how is this book going to advance and develop these characters and take them maybe in places that they haven't been before? 
in the previous 18 novels, like at two novellas and collection of short stories. And then, you know, there's also a realism factor to it, too. Like that, I mean, I don't ever want to have a a book where Walt is chasing Al-Qaeda in Crook County or Walt's on a cruise ship or something like that. I I want him dealing with the things that Western sheriffs deal with. And so one of the ways I can do that is, is by using newspaper articles as a catalyst. It's a kind of a jumping off point. And there was a uh, an article about a rifle that had been found up in the Bighorn Mountains. And it's not an unusual occurrence, as it, it might sound like that, because a lot of hunters get up there and, you know, they'll fire off the rifle like that. And then they'll go and track down the elk that they shot. And they'll uh, have leaned their rifle up against a tree or something and having forgotten it, look back and see a couple of thousand trees and can't remember exactly which tree it was that they <laughs> left that rifle leaning against. Like it. And so it's not an unusual occurrence like that. And so that was one you know catalyst for the storyline. The, the other major catalyst, of course, was the relationship between Walt and his grandfather. And then there was another story like that that I had read, you know, from a, a famed Western author by the name of Elmer Keith, like that, who was a big game hunter and an outfitter, like that, and uh, and a pretty amazing individual, like that. And he wrote a little autobiographical book called "Hell I Was There," and in it he describes a situation where the state accountant, you know, for the state of Montana, was accidentally killed, and he kind of intimates that you know there may have been more to this story than anybody really knew. And so when Walt's on this search and rescue uh, campaign up in the mountain to try and find this woman, he stumbles onto this rock outcropping and realizes that he's been there before. As a matter of fact, it might have been the spot exactly where it was that his father told him about the first time that he'd ever seen a man killed. And so he starts you know, asking some questions and finding out about it. And of course, what happens is, is that, you know, um, he discovers this weapon that was used, you know, to actually kill this fellow by the name of Bill Sutherland. The, uh, the accountant for the state of Wyoming. And, you know, I like to think of Walt as being a very even-handed and ecumenical inspector and detective. And as it turns out, like that, it turns into something different when he discovers this rifle actually belonged to his grandfather, Lloyd Longmire. Um, nice. Let's talk about, because I know that you've hinted a little bit about Walt and Lloyd's problematic relationship in the past. And when I was reading the book, I was trying to figure out what's what's the deal with these two. And you you talked a little bit before we came on. And tell tell us why Walt and and his grandfather just couldn't quite get along. Well, I think what a lot of it boils down to is is they were two bulls in the same paddock. Like that, they were a little bit too much alike, you know, for the two of them to get along. And the only common ground that they could seem to find was that chessboard, you know, where his grandfather teaches him how to play chess. And, you know, it's a a struggle, you know, between the two of them, like over the years, like and after he passes, you know, there's kind of a a disassociated, you know, kind of quality that Walt has, you know, with his grandfather. But then when it leads him back into it again, like that, uh, he starts getting some different perspectives from a lot of different people within the community. And uh, I don't know, by the time the book is over with, he kind of has a begrudging kind of respect um, for the man. You know, a lot of times, you know, it takes a little bit of seasoning and a little age, you know, before you start really... uh, respecting your elders like that. I, I'm reminded of that, that great quote from uh, Mark Twain, where he says, you know, when I was young, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was like it. And by the time I got into my thirties, I couldn't believe how much smarter he'd gotten. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. Okay. So the other character that's really intriguing in the book that we meet is um, Ruth Oneheart, and she comes back and she brings some intrigue and secrets. What was their relationship like growing up? 
Well, it was fun because I, you know, I've never, I've kind of hinted at, you know, and given us little brief glimpses of Walt's actual childhood, but we never really hear, you know, a lot about it. Like, and so with the introduction of Ruth or Ruthless, as Walt sometimes refers to her, um, we get a little bit more of a detailed version of like what Walt's, you know, youth might have been like. And obviously, it's a very complex relationship between Ruth and Walt. Mm-hmm. And to see that come circling back around after all these years, like after losing track of each other, um, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, just how close they were at that point in time and how quickly they become close once again. Yeah. Are you able to, without spoilers, can you talk about why she came back to town? Well, I mean, you know, there are some reasons like that that she's involved with. Obviously, like at the boomerang effect of, you know, having your parents become older and uh, you find yourself drawn back into that world again to try and keep things straightened up and going well. And then, of course, there are some other reasons like that that I can't convey, like that as to why it is that Ruth becomes uh, once again involved in the area. (laughs) So I think you're setting me up for failure with that question. I think. Yeah, I know. know. I'm like, oh, I tried, I tried, I tried. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot below the surface with Ruth, definitely. Mm-hmm. But you know, Craig, if you would, in this book, Vic and Walt's relationship takes a kind of a complicated turn this time around. And of course, Vic is his longtime deputy, right? Mm-hmm. And can we say that they are in a relationship now? Well, they're kind of in a relationship, and then they're not in a relationship, and then they are in a relationship. <laughs> now, you probably don't have any idea what that's like, like that, but uh, but I can say I, quite honestly, like that. Uh, when I first started writing the books, it was kind of funny, like that, because I had a lot of other authors who were, you know, giving me advice on what it is I should do, and more importantly, what I shouldn't do. And one of the things they said was, is you can have, you know, sexual tension between your characters, but you can't have anything happen for seventeen or eighteen books. And my immediate response to that was, what kind of women are you dating that would wait 17 or 18 years for something to happen? And so <laughs> what I did was the third book, you know, they, they were in Philadelphia and there were complications and difficulties like that. And then something happened. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of been an on again, off again relationship, you know, as the years have gone by. It may seem like it's been 19 years, but it actually hasn't like that because I write the books in a cyclical manner like that. And so it takes actually four books to get through one year of Walt's literary life. What I did was I pulled a Vivaldi is what I did. I decided that if I wanted differing environs for each book, I thought, okay, why not go with the seasons? What's the thing that has the largest scale effect on us as Westerners? It has to be the seasons. Like it has to be the weather. And so each book has a season. And so after writing 20, I guess, you know, I'm working on the 20th book now, like that, I'm 20 years older than when I started, whereas Walt is only five years older than when we started writing the books. And so at some point in time, I'm going to be older than Walt. I don't know if I like that idea at all. I remember Sue Grafton didn't let her, her series character, Kinsey Malone, Sue aged, but Kinsey didn't. And I thought that was a... <laughs> I thought that was a, a pretty a pretty clever thing to do. And of course, so Kinsey never had a cell phone as far as I can remember. She was stuck in the like in the eighties, I guess. <laughs> Walt's kind of stuck in the eighties too, like that, but that's by choice. I think he's like decided he, he's not very good with technology. Like it's just not one of the things that he deals with very well. And I do have to admit that I laugh sometimes, like at whenever somebody will ask me, they'll say, you know, well. You know, why is it that Walt doesn't have a cell phone? And I'm always looking at them and going, 
you don't live in, you've never been to Wyoming, have you? Like, you know, because it's, you know, unless you just want to take selfies with the antelope and the buffalo, like that's pretty much a, about as much use as it can be an awful lot of the time. But, uh, but yeah, for me, that's actually a, a blessing in the sense that, you know, the limitations of technology, they become pretty evident in the face of mother nature. You know, and when you're talking about the vast and open spaces and lack of population that there is here in Wyoming, the shortcomings of that technology become very clear after a while. And then to be honest with you, I think it's a little bit of a, of a downfall, you know, for a lot of authors in the sense that, you know, it's too easy to rely on jumping on the computer or using your cell phone or something like that. And for me, you know, it's much more dramatic, you know, for someone to go and knock on a door and look someone in the eye um, and deal with these things, you know, in a hands-on kind of method rather than you know, relying on technology. Did this book require any special research? You've lived, you, I mean, you lived in this world and you've, you, you and Walt have known each other for 20 years. Were there any surprises <laughs> in this in the Longmire defense? I'm laughing because there's one great big huge one, and that's the financial aspect of it. Like the the, the big aspect of the the mineral fund, you know, for the state of Wyoming. Like, and I think that there's a portion in the book actually where Walt's trying to clumsily explain the the, the mineral fund of Wyoming, which pays, I think, something close to like you know thirty percent of uh, of the state budget. Like he's trying to explain it to uh, Ruby his dispatcher like that. And he's fumbling through it. Like she finally looks at him and goes, what do you know about that? You can't even balance your checkbook for goodness sake. <laughs> and so I kind of have to float my stick, you know, with Waltz. Like I, I didn't even know about the permanent wealth fund, mineral fund, you know, for the state of Wyoming. Like, and so to go in and find out that like the reason it was implemented in 1968 was because the state of Wyoming had, I think $80, you know, in its bank account. You know, it's kind of interesting to see how these kind of things develop, you know, in which states, certainly in the West, it's kind of a big deal, like at those mineral funds, like that they prop up a lot, you know, of, uh, you know, the expenditures like for each one of these states. And so that was interesting to find. And of course, I think it was also a very important aspect of the book in the sense that, you know, you can do a cold case book, you know, that deals specifically with a cold case situation and all that type of thing. But then it becomes kind of like a, a research book that really doesn't have, you know, the dramatic conflict and consequence that you kind of need, you know, for any kind of mystery or thriller. And so for there to be a connection between the finances of what was going on, where the state accountant was killed in 1948, and what's going on today, like that, that kind of made it a little bit more of a compelling storyline, I think. Yeah, I think it, it, it was interesting that all of a sudden Walt realizes the potential for fraud in a fund that enormous... Absolutely. I mean, my favorite part is the one where his daughter is trying to explain to him, you know, that how many, you know, billions like that, you know, th this fund is worth on an annual basis. And she's like, not M with a, not millions with an M, but billions with a B, you know, trying to explain to him just how many zeros are on the end of this particular situation. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. So I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit, and you, you've touched a little bit on Walt's grandfather, Lloyd, and they've had a checkered past relationship. But can you talk a little bit about like the dynamic and their history and, and kind of why you think Walt had became a model of morality? Well, I think that, you know, that one of the things his grandfather was attempting to try and teach him, you know, in, you know, in, in the manner that he knew best, you know, was to train Walt's mind like that by playing chess. 
and getting him to see that like, you know, there were, you know, responses like that, that you could you know, rely on, like and there's some responses you couldn't rely on how to think a few steps ahead, you know, when it is that you're involved in any kind of an investigation or any kind of life in it all. And I think that, you know, he was trying to train and help his grandson as much as he knew how. Um, but the fact mm-hmm. that their two personalities were very much alike made that extraordinarily difficult. I think that, you know, it's been hinted at, you know, that relationship over, I mean, I don't know how many books like that. I mean, numerous books like that, but it was just a question of finding the right storyline um, to kind of illustrate, you know, what it was that was going on between the two of them. And, uh, you know, like I was saying before, like that there's some aspects of that, that man's character that were very noble, you know, and uh, very surprising, I think, you know, to Walt, um, little, little, little things that he discovers along the way. And then of course, some major, uh, implications like that, that he discovers that had a major effect, you know, in his life and, uh, in his family's life like that, that, uh, that his father, his grandfather kind of had, had close to the vest, you know, and didn't share very much like that. And, uh, Walt kind of has to go digging, to discover those things. And, uh, it, I think it makes, you know, for a, a compelling, not only a public case, like that, but also a personal case for Walt too. Yes. 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 You know, your books, so beautifully explore the natural setting in Wyoming. But mm-hmm. I was so intrigued with Lloyd's house. And I kept saying, Walt, why do you want to live in a cabin out in the woods? You should move into granddad's house. Did you have fun creating that house? I did. And it's actually based off of uh, the XL Ranch, like it, which is, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit to the east of where my ranch is here. But it was, um, there was a great big cattle bear in there, like that, who had this magnificent uh, house built, like that. And, uh, and then it's so far out, like that, that it's kind of fallen into disrepair, like that. And the state of Wyoming has taken it over. But every time I walk through you know, that area, every time I walk through those abandoned buildings, you know, I, I, I'm haunted by it. And I didn't grow up there, like that. I can't help but imagine that, of course, you know, if for poor Walt, like that, to go back there and see, you know, that place, like that, and hear those echoing voices, you know, to see those books on the shelves and know that, you know, he read all of those books, look up there and see that painting of his grandfather, you know, there where the light comes through and he can see it. That's, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're all haunted, you know, by, you know, our ancestors, you know, we're all haunted, mm-hmm. you know, by our childhood like that and by our uprearing like that. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, it, it comes back, you know, maybe a little bit more harsh than, uh, than other times. Yeah. I think that's the thing in the book that's going to be so relatable to readers too. Cause like you say, everybody has that kind of relationship and it'll just kind of put a, a lot of that in people's heads. Thank you. I hope that's the case. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, I was, before we started, got on the podcast today, I was telling Craig that I was telling a friend who, who likes mysteries and thrillers that I was, you know, that I had read the new Longmire book. And my friend who likes mysteries and thrillers said, oh, well, tell me about the character. And I said, well, kind of like Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch, but with a cowboy hat. And then, and uh, and by the way, that's huge praise. And then Craig very correctly pointed out that there's the a lot of differences, obviously, but one of the big ones is that Walt has a sense of humor, right? He does. He does. I mean, for me, 
I don't know, you know, maybe that's a, a fault in my own character. Look at that. I, I can't write one serious line of dialogue without coming up with like 12 smart ass responses like that, which is why Vic Moretti in the books is so valuable like because most of the time she's the one that's responding to Walt an awful lot of the time and Henry too like that. But uh, yeah, for me, that's, that's one of the higher concepts of, you know, intellectual content, you know, is uh, the ability to laugh or the ability to see the humor in things like that. And I think when we were discussing before, like that there are two major components in that type of, uh, of writing, like that there's comedy, which is, you know, when you, you have an, an artificial kind of situation that's set up to make for uh, a funny thing to happen like that. And then there's humor and humor is more character driven. I think it's more based off of um, the relatable aspects of that character, their intellectual capacities, like at the relationships, all those different things. And for me, that's that's my stock and trade. That's one of the things that I really love um, delving into, like that, because for me, it's it's one of the simple components that make the characters relatable. Um, that you know, there's nothing more compelling than someone who's funny. You know, you like being around right. people. Funny. You like spending time, you know, with people that are funny. And then the other aspect Mm -hmm. of it is that I think it's I think it's an honest portrayal because anybody that's ever had a difficult job, whether it be, you know, in the medical field or law enforcement or all these different, you know, businesses that you might be in like that, where you're dealing with people at their best and at their worst and very, you know, high context kind of situations like that. One of the ways that you get through that is by having a sense of humor. I have a lot of law enforcement people who read my books, and the first thing they always say is, it's the humor. It's the humor that you get so right. And that's what makes the character so compelling for me. That's that's very gratifying. I love the interchange. You know, Walt plays so beautifully against Henry, his best friend. Do we call him a sidekick, Craig? I don't know. Sometimes I think Walt is Henry's sidekick an awful lot of the time. (laughs) You know, Henry makes a great straight man, but then Walt is a straight man too. And would you talk to us about the Native American sense of humor and how nuanced it is? Well, I think, you know, whenever, you know, like, as I was saying like that, you know, I mean, one of the, the, the you know, the major components of the place where it is that I live is, is the native component like that. So, I mean, the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation are just to the north of me and they're just incredible people like that. And, and for me to not include them in the books would be horrifying. It would be, it would be, it would, well, it wouldn't be honest. It simply would not be an honest portrayal of where it is that I live like that. But then again, you know, you owe them, you know, a sense of honesty like that and, and relatability like that, you know, so that you're trying like that to, to be as compelling as you can be like that, but also wanting to be, you know, a part of that world like that as much as you possibly can. And so, you know, it, it, it's important that it be there, but also be honest. And so obviously the aspect of that is, is that, you know, I, these are my neighbors, my friends, you know, family members, for goodness sake. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes about writing is the one from Wallace Stegner, where he says the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off anybody alive or dead, you know, and what a crock that is like that. I mean, that's your job to go find interesting people and populate your books with them. And so, you know, those are going to be native characters. The problem, of course, is, is that I live in a state that only has a half a million people in it. So whenever I'm talking about anybody, they all know who I'm talking about. And it's even worse on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation because there are only 5,000 enrolled members of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. So whenever I mention one of them, they all know who it is that I'm talking about. And uh, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's uh, it, it's an essential part of the book. So, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I can go through 
and give you the exact person that each and every one of the characters is based off of. Like I was talking about Marcus Red Thunder, my good buddy here earlier, like that. And, uh, you know, he's the, he's, he's Henry is who he is like that. And, uh, you know, that's the fun part for me is like to develop those characters and, and kind of give them as a gift to the reader to let them see what these folks are really like. Does Marcus Red Thunder run a, a tavern? No, he actually doesn't. Look at he he's he's involved in so many different businesses. That's the one business he's not involved in for goodness sake. Like that. So uh but when I was trying to come up with the character, I thought, okay, you know, these two individuals need to be, you know, emblematic of, you know, the cultures, you know, that they represent. Like that. And so I thought, okay, well if Walt's gonna be in law enforcement, then I'd rather Henry not be in law enforcement like that. But you know, he would be a business owner and uh, you know, he's 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 kind of one of the pillars of the Northern Cheyenne tribe like that, and uh, kind of a chief without being a chief. Um, he didn't fall asleep during any of the meetings like that. So he didn't get elected. So that's a, uh, it's a little bit easier for him, I think in the long run. <laughs> that's awesome. I want to ask a little bit about Trisha Knox. She's a character that you introduced in the book and, and Walt becomes very invested in her. Can you talk about that relationship? Well, that's always the challenge, you know, because you're introducing new characters, you know, with each book. Um, as a general rule like that. And they have to be compelling. Like they have to be able to, you know, I mean, I think it was Steinbeck that said that you should be able to like take any minor character in your book and turn around and write an entire another novel, you know, about that character. Like that. And of course, Trisha Knox is one of those characters. Like that. it also has an opportunity like that for Walt to, you know, maybe have interaction, you know, with people from other parts of the country and other parts of society and the culture that he normally wouldn't have any interaction with. Like that. And so it kind of broadens his horizons there a little bit. Like that. And I think that, you know, he obviously cares, you know, about people. Um, one of the terms that I, I've always heard like that, you know, whenever I'm doing ride alongs with sheriffs and one here in Wyoming up Montana is my people. I have to look after my people like that. There's a, a kind of a, a, an ownership, you know, to the community that I think the sheriffs have like that, that maybe is a little bit different from a lot of other forms of law enforcement in the basis that, you know, they are the, they are the only elected law enforcement officials that there are. I mean, they are not only police officers, but they're also politicians. They have to go out and they have to get elected. Like that. And so they're kind of connected, you know, to the people that vote for them and give them this position of power like that. And it kind of becomes, you know, uh, emblematic, I think, you know, of the way that Walt deals with the people in the books, like that, that they're all, you know, people that he looks after and tries to take care of. You know, sometimes he can do a better job than others like that because the, you know, the situation won't allow for it like that. And, uh, and sometimes he's able to save some of those people like that. And so this is one of those cases as far as Trish Knox is concerned. Yeah, she's very interesting. You know, it sounds, Craig, like you feel a great responsibility to write about the West and your investment in the West. Would you talk a little bit about that and how were, – were there any early influences on your writing that somebody you said, you know, that that writer gets the West right and I want to do that? Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, the, the, you know it, it's like any other genre. Like that Westerns, you know, can fall, you know, victim, you know, to uh, the tropes like that and the stereotypes and all that type of thing like that. But that's not my job like that. My job is to try and give you an honest portrayal of what Absaroka County in Wyoming would be like. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, they're, 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 it's always like, I mean, no matter what happens, it seems as though whenever a Western comes out, like a, it, the, the, the media is always quick to say, well, that's it. The Western's dead. This is the last Western. Like, and as it turns out, that's generally not the case. 
having started the books about 20 years ago and then having the TV show start up um, here about 12 years ago, I guess it was like we were kind of on the forefront of all of these contemporary Westerns that you're seeing nowadays on television. We were the first one to kind of like do that and and be successful at it like and so it's kind of nice to see this you know continue on you know with a lot of the westerns that are out there now as far as the books are concerned you know the, the one of the acid tests you know for that of course like it is uh, the foreign sales of the books like uh, the books are very very popular in a lot of foreign countries the one that i laugh about the most is is if somebody would have said okay these books about a, the sheriff of the least populated county and the least populated state in America are going to be a runaway hit in a foreign country. Maybe France wouldn't have been the first guess that I made, but <laughs> the books are on the bestsellers list in France every year, like that, and have been for like you know I don't know something like about maybe fifteen years now, like that, which is actually kind of nice, like that, because I get to take the wife, you yeah. know, to, uh, to Paris at least you know twice a year. You know, those trips to, to Gillette, you know, and Casper just weren't cutting the mustard anymore. Like that. So I've, I've been able to stay uh, married, you know, maybe a little bit longer than I deserve like that. And uh, I don't know. I think uh, an awful lot of, you know, of certainly, you know, uh, readers from other countries, they're very knowledgeable about the West. They're very knowledgeable about Western literature. But they also have a very keen sense of, you know, what seems real and what doesn't. And so, you know, there are an awful lot of mysteries and foreign uh, or rather Westerns like that that don't really, you know, don't have a, don't have legs when they get overseas like that, because, you know, they're, they're, the readers are not going to buy into it unless they think it's believable. And fortunately, hopefully the books, you know, stay that way, like that remain believable in their eyes. And it makes it a little bit easier to to, you know, to, to continue on with the series, I have to admit. That's fascinating. I never would have thought that about France, but that's uh, that makes total sense that they can kind of see through the BS and they they can see what what's real and what isn't. They're pretty ruthless that way. They're very shrewd readers, right? and uh, it's always you. fun whenever you go and do those tours like that because the questions that they ask are so completely different um, from the questions that you get you know whenever you're touring in the U.S. or anywhere else. Like it's uh, it's interesting to see the cultural differences. Yeah. Do you wear the cowboy hat in Paris? You bet I do. I wear my cowboy hat every day. Like that. And just because I happen to be in Europe doesn't mean I'm not going to wear my cowboy hat <laughs> along with my boots and everything else. Like that. It, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting like that because, uh, I mean, well, there was actually one instance like that that I have to admit. One of my first trips there, I was walking down the street, you know, there in Paris like that with my publisher, Oliver Gaumeister, like that. And uh, we turned a corner and there was an older woman coming out of, uh, a little, you know, little bread shop like that. And she was very stereotypical, like, you know, with the sensible shoes, the little black dress and everything. And hanging had a, a bag full of baguettes as she turned the corner there. And as she turned the corner, she looked at me and I tipped my hat to her and she burst out crying. And I stood there for a second, kind of shocked and wondering what it is that's going on here. Like that. And she and Oliver are talking about a million miles an hour in French, which I have a, a working vocabulary of about maybe 12 words. And, uh, and finally, I, I looked at it and said, what did I do? What did I do wrong? And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. After, you know, World War Two, you know, here, you know, in Europe, we were kind of in a rebuilding phase like that. And so we were kind of inundated, you know, with you know, television or more importantly, like films and books like that. And then again, television later on um, from America like that. Well, what was the predominant art form at that period of time? Certainly in television was you know, the Western. And she said she used to watch Westerns with her father when she was growing up. And she never thought that she would turn a corner and have a cowboy tip his hat to her on the streets in Paris. <laughs> I thought that was extraordinary. Oh, that's a great story. 
<laughs> well, a few minutes ago, you mentioned a little bit about the series, the Longmire series, uh-huh. and it's still, it's still like, it's still one of the number one, the number, you know, high number ratings on Netflix. Can you explain its staying power? <laughs> I wish I could. Like, I, I, it's been kind of amazing to see what's happened, you know. But uh, I mean, we were like the first three seasons were actually on A and E. And we were the highest rated scripted drama they ever had. Like the difficulty proved to be that they wanted to buy the show from Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers wouldn't sell it. Like so they canceled it. it. Didn't do them a lot of good when they canceled it. Like but then it got picked up by Netflix, and Netflix had the show for about three seasons. And then of course, what happened? Netflix wanted to buy it from Warner Brothers. Like at Warner Brothers, still wouldn't sell the show. And so I think what you know Netflix was thinking was we've got this little cowboy and Indian show, and uh, you know hey. You know, we'll let it go off, you know, here in a couple of years, like it'll it'll go off into the sunset and that'll be the end of it. Well, that was six years ago. And we're still one of the top 10 to 20 shows every other week, you know, on Netflix. That's awesome. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of it has to do, I think, you know, with Robert Taylor's, you know, uh, we have some really magnificent performers all the way through the show. Yes. But, you know, it is called Longmire for a reason. You know, and Robert Taylor, who plays Walt Longmire does an absolutely magnificent job of conveying those aspects of Walt's character. I mean, that's one of the things that I think, you know, is it helps with the Walt's longevity like that is, is that he is a decent guy. He's a, he's a good hearted guy. You know, he, he, he's tough like that and he can, you know, deal with situations as they come like that, but, but he's got a good heart like that. And, uh, he's damaged goods, which is another one of those things that maybe I might've missed, uh, you know, I might, I might have miscalculated on that, like in the sense that I don't think that I realized just how appealing Walt would be, you know, being damaged goods. Like a, he's got problems. He's got things he's working his way through like that. Right. But uh, but he's still a decent individual like that and a kind hearted individual. And I think that kind of harkens back, you know, maybe to some of those older, you know, uh, cowboy characters like that, that perhaps that woman from the streets of Paris, you know, uh, fell in love with like that and enjoyed watching you know, from week to week. Yeah, you forgot to mention that Robert is also kind of easy on the eyes. <laughs> you know, you're it's not the first deal. woman to tell me that. Like, I have to admit, he's, you know, he's I, I've Australian, had women. right? He's Australian, right? Yes, he is. Like, as a matter of fact, my wife is one of the ones who told me that she thought that he was pretty doggone good looking. And uh, you know, what, what the phrase I think she used was is that he's he's like a TV version of you, taller, better looking, with a better voice. So uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe not as big of a fan of Robert Taylor as I used to be, like that. But uh, but yeah, I think he, he does an absolutely magnificent job, you know, in portraying the characters. Like we had really great producers and showrunners and directors, like at the cast. And then, of course, you know, we have this thing called Longmire Days that we have um, here oh, in yeah, Buffalo, about 20 miles away. You know, yeah. it was funny like that because, you know, when Longmire Days started, it was basically me sitting under an umbrella like that with a box of books, you know, and a couple hundred people showed up and it was wonderful. It was great like that. But then the Office of Tourism for the state of Wyoming asked me, they said, well, do you think you can get some of the actors to come up for Longmire Days? And I was like, I, I don't know. Which ones do you want? And they said, all of them. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, you know, we'll try and give that a shot. Like, and as it turned out, you know, the, the majority of them have actually shown up for Longmire Days over the years. We've had it now for about, I think this was our 12th year, I think this summer. And even with, you know, the SAG-AFTRA difficulties, like, uh, you know, we were able to, you know, continue on with the, the event. And, uh, you know, we, we made a lot of money like that for charity. 
with about 10 or 15,000 people show up like at it. It's kind of like a FEMA disaster is what it's like, like that. I mean, it's a little town of 4,000 people like it. And all of a sudden, you know, the restaurants and the grocery stores don't have any food and uh, the, you know, the ATM and, and banks don't have any money like it. And everybody's walking around and their cell phones don't work because there's only one little tower in Buffalo, Wyoming. And that's when I walk up to them and go, now, you know why Walt doesn't carry a cell phone, don't you? Like, <laughs> it's kind of been a learning experience for everybody. Body. But it's a it's a pretty wonderful event, I think that uh, that does a lot of good in the long term. I think so too. I, I looked online at some of the pictures when I read about that, and I thought, wow, this is really fun. And they just had it, I think, in July. Mm-hmm. Do you think they'll have it? The, it'll keep going. Difficult to say. Like, I mean, who knows? Like, you know, what the 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 the, you know, the environment will be like at next year, like that. But we've been doing it. You know, we we made it all the way through COVID in the darkest year of COVID. Yeah. Um, we did it all online. It was all virtual. Which was absolutely a blast because, see, I've gotten to know these actors very, very well. And so the questions that I ask them are a little bit different than the ones that they normally get. Like, and so we had a wonderful right. time sure. doing it virtually, like that, and, uh, you know, and having readings and doing all of that. Like, that, if anything, I, I feel a little bad, like that, because we had a, a, such an incredible international audience that, you know, dropped into view and see all of Longmire Days when we did it virtually, like that. And we try and do as many events as we can virtually when the events, you know, happening live but it's tough like that i mean i'm once again you know i'm not the most technologically advanced individual on the face of the earth like it and so you know trying to do that you know is a little bit difficult and do you know the live event at the same time like that but uh but yeah yeah no we'll 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 see what happens next summer we'll see what happens well i know all of our listeners are going to be checking out the uh, longmire day situation what do you have in mind for long? You told us that you're working on Longmire number 20. Can you give us any mm-hmm. kind of a clue about what, what's going to go on with that? I sure can. Like that, as a matter of fact, like that, it's uh, it's actually called first frost and the title actually comes from when it is, you know, and this is a dying, I know this has like been on your guys' minds. Like when it is that you switch over from wearing your straw hat to wearing your wool or beaver fur hat. Like that. And when you do that is when the first frost hits. And so that's where the title of the book came from, First Frost. And, uh, but it's also revealing like that the, a little bit more of Walt and Henry's past, like in a, a turbulent, you know, kind of transitionary period in their lives. Um, the majority of the book takes place in 1963 um, when Walt and Henry graduate. Walt from USC, Henry from Berkeley, and they lose their deferment and are actually drafted like that and headed for Vietnam. And so it leads to this cross-country trip like that, uh, on Route 66 as Henry goes to Fort Polk, Louisiana, and Walt goes to uh, Paris Island, you know, just off the coast of uh, South Carolina. And uh, it's interesting to see these characters, you know, when they're at the ripe old age of 22. Um, you know, they're, they're a little bit different characters than they are now. And uh, that was fun. And, of course, the interesting thing is to see how, how much mileage they put in before they run into trouble and things start uh, falling apart like that. And they have to try and put things back together again. What are they driving? You know what? They've got this old ranch truck that Walt, you know, uh, got from his parents like that when he went away to college. It would be a lot more interesting like if they were in a 1963 uh, Corvette, you know, like Route 66. But unfortunately, they're not like that. They're in an old ranch truck. It, it acquires a few mechanical problems along the way. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Sounds great. Do you want to talk about, I mean, I'd love to know if, if Craig, if you think the success of Yellowstone, that's such a huge monster success. Do you think that's rekindled? And I mean, I don't think people are, have been disinterested in the West, but I think 
Yellowstone certainly has a lot of people keep showing up out there. Well, I think, you know, it boils down to, you know, I remember there was one time like that I was doing a speech or a talk like that with the Western Writers of America. And I remember looking out into the audience and trying to explain to a lot of would-be authors there that, you know what, guys and ladies, don't don't try and rewrite Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey, you know, because Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey were pretty good at writing Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey. So what you need right. to do is try and find a different angle of attack. Um, and I think that, you know, the contemporary Western, you know, was the way that, you know, I thought. Yeah, things would be a little bit different like that. And uh, yeah, it appears to have spawned a, a number of, uh, of, uh, of, of television versions like that. Of course, you know, there's Dark Winds also like that, which has uh, Zon McLaren, like that, one of our cast members, like that. I'm always giving Ann Hillerman a hard time saying, well, I'm just glad that we could provide you, you know, with a star like that, you know, for your show <laughs> like that, you know, but uh, if anything, I kind of owed that to Tony Hillerman. He was very, ex- he was extraordinarily supportive of my career when it started like that. But it's kind of interesting like that, because I always think of Tony's books as being contemporary, but I think they did a good job of going back and actually placing those in the 1970s when the, the books actually took place. Like at a, it's an amazing thing. It seems like the seventies were just yesterday, but then they weren't, they were a little right. bit further back. Yeah, than they weren't. <laughs> I was a huge Tony Ellerman fan and, and had the incredible honor of meeting him at one time. And what a kind, genuine, warm person he was. And I think he, oh, absolutely. he did so much, I think. Oh yeah. Well, I, I, I the, the incredible thing is, is that he actually, uh, I think it was Wes Studi, like it, I think that made the remark in one of his interviews, like it, where he said, the amazing thing about Tony Hillerman's work is, as you said, you've got these two native investigators and the Lone Ranger never shows up. You know, they're the ones that are the, the, the leads in this, like it. And a lot of people, I think, kind of forget, you know, I mean, because Tony started writing his books in 1968. That's when his yeah. first book came out. Like that. Well, I don't know if people remember, but that was the AIM movement, Alcatraz. At that point in time, it was not cool to be Indian. Like that, you know, it kind of gravitated towards that later on. Right. But there was a lot of anti-native uh, impetus, you know, in the culture at that period in time. Like, that. and for him to take that step and to try and do something, you know, different from what anybody else had done before was extraordinarily brave and highly successful, as we can see even now. Yeah, I mean, Anne Hillerman does a, a magnificent job in continuing his lineage, like that, and she was very, very smart, just like Tony, where she took, you know, one of the minor characters in Tony's books and gravitated her like that and graduated her to being the major character of the books and took his characters and made them support characters in her books like that. And I think yeah. that, that was that was extraordinarily smart on her part. She's she's one smart cookie. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of brilliant. Well, Craig, I know that our time with you is is waning and i'm sad about that we could do this all day but thanks so much for joining us it's been such an honor can you share with our listeners where they can connect online to learn more about your work and your tour Oh yeah, I've, I've, I, I know it's hard to believe, like with my lack of technology, but I actually have a website. It's called CraigAllenJohnson.com, C-R-A-I-G-A-L-L-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com, and you can go there to find all kinds of information. I'm also on social media, Craig Johnson, author, like that. You can find me just about everywhere. I'm like cockroaches. I'm all over the place, like that. And uh, of course, with this <laughs> upcoming uh, tour, I am going to be everywhere. I think I've got like 26 cities. I think I'm going to be in where the tour runs all the way. Through through September and even into October like that. So I'll be out there on the road like that. You may see me in the, on the median on the highway, like that with a squeegee and a book, you know, you never can tell. <laughs> yeah. If you're in the airport and you see a guy with a cowboy hat, ask him to sign your book. <laughs> yes. I may be asleep, but just come over and nudge me and I'll wake up yes. and sign your book. No problem. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, huge success with the book. We, we're wishing you all the best. Thank you, guys. And thanks for having me today. It was a blast. Yeah, thanks. Wonderful. My pleasure. And a huge thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You are the reason that we get to continue doing this and know that we appreciate you very, very much. Please be sure to grab a copy of The Longmire Defense at our friendsinfictionbookshop.org page. Save a little money and help an indie bookstore. Tune in next week and please be sure to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.